to Sincerely Z, the podcast by Jen Rise. And so November being election month and election day happened on November 3rd. And a lot of crazy stuff went down. And it's still happening right now. The Electoral College will meet next month and the inauguration will be in January. So... Whatever happens then, we'll see. But today, I really want to focus on voting, being it election month and a new presidential election in 2020. And I want to talk about the history behind voting, the people who created voting in America, and how does that, how does voter suppression, you know, different ways voter suppression is carried out throughout the United States, the policies that support voter suppression, and how we can pick up on them and notice them, and what we can do about it. So starting off, the Electoral College, right, dating way back to the Constitution, the beginning of America, right, the Founding Fathers, they created this system where we, where the people would indirectly vote for the president so when they're actually voting and even now there's st- their vote only counts to the state delegates and uh varies from state to state but typically they just appoint an elector and they swear an oath and then then they then the electors cast their vote uh, some states they form a convention and they pick out the electors or some states let the people decide let their citizens decide, but there are some laws in the Constitution that mentions about electors. Some there's one where in the Fourteenth Amendment, the electors couldn't be um, part of the the quote unquote rebellion against the United States during the Civil War, and also stated that. Electors couldn't be a member of Congress, hold federal office, and it was basically up to the states itself to pick out who the elector is. So the Electoral College is just the system of voting. It's really controversial, and there's a lot of different ideas and beliefs about it, and we can summarize those beliefs I don't want to go too deep into it. That could be a whole podcast on its own. But basically, so the people, they vote for their state delegates. And they those electors will meet up and cast their vote for the vice president and the president. So within the Electoral College, there's a lot of controversy, as I mentioned before. One being that you know, states have a different amount of power within each vote so in one state one vote might count maybe about three times more than another state an example is after 2016 the washington post um recorded that wyoming has three electoral votes and these electoral votes are you know distributed based on the state's population and so wyoming had a population of five uh, in 2016 about 586,000 and Wyoming had the electoral votes in 
while California has about 40 million residents, but only has 55 electoral votes. So, like, when you do the math and when you, you know, look at the proportions, you know, it shows that a vote from Wyoming would have 3.6 times the power from a vote in California. Now, this was specifically designed in the Electoral College by the Founding Fathers so that the more populous states, those states with more, more population, you know, in the cities, wouldn't have more influence, right? Wouldn't overpower the votes from rural states. But you know, this was made in 1787. And from then, with the 13 colonies to now in 2020 with 50 states, I think there was a huge increase in population. And a lot of things have changed. So as one of the biggest arguments to you know destroying the electoral college or at least amending it is that you know states have extremely different you know power within their votes you know, back then when they created the electoral college the founding fathers didn't want to place the power of the votes to uneducated um citizens right and that's why they created the state delegates so that you know the richer more educated could cast their votes so that the power was in the more informed people. So sorry for jumping back and forth, but there's about 538 total electors. So this is how, you know, the number of electors each state gets is is set up. So so each state has two electoral votes right um starting off because it's one for each elector sorry one for each senator and then every representative they have adds on to the amount of electors they have so this was made to ensure that no matter how little people you have in your state you're still going to have at least two electoral votes because of your senators and then the bigger states you know to balance out, obviously, there's more population there. There's more people living there. They would have more U.S. representatives, and that would add on to their number of electoral voters. And so because um, Washington, D.C. is not their actual state, they are called the District of Columbia, and they get three electoral votes. And just a little backstory why Washington, D.C. is in a state I think it's because back then the founding fathers wanted a capital where the where the people wouldn't be able to vote. They wanted to create a completely you know, neutral place where the White House could be and all the representatives and senators. And so it would be politically neutral, I guess, and the people wouldn't have a vote. And over time, that has changed. They've gotten three electoral votes. But then again, it's still not enough, right? They need U.S. representatives in their state. They need to have the power that every state has. Considering that, you know, their citizens are taxed the exact same way a real state is. So the founding fathers never expected D.C. um, supposedly supposed to be a federally neutral state to become a huge major city. 
right? It has populations extremely similar to real states. And, but, you know, they're not, they're fighting for, you know, statehood because, again, right, they're being taxed as other states and they, but they have no power, really little power in Congress. And, you know, they can be extremely oppressed and you know the congress has basically all say over you know their policies and lawmaking so a really short side note here right there has been growing growing you know support within the democrats for you know um washington dc become a state to give it statehood and quite possibly could be the 51st state but a lot of republicans in 2020 voted against it because it would give Washington, D.C., an extremely democratic state, more representatives in the House. And so although it didn't pass, right, there's still not a state. It, the vote was extremely monumental because, you know, they were really close. And maybe if the, and maybe in 2021 or in the next um, presidency, when if the Democrats have control of the Senate, they could, you know, possibly really make Washington, D.C. a state. But going back to the history of voting and seeing how voter suppression has played out throughout the years, we should go back to after the Civil War. So after the Civil War, after the North, you know, was victorious and the South surrendered, Three amendments were passed, the 13th, 14th, and 15th. They were all part of the Reconstruction era to you know, ensure that African Americans in the South would not be, their vote would not be, you know, outcasted by the state governments. And the 13th is, was passed in 1865 and abolished slavery. The 14th Amendment passed in 1868 made all African Americans equal under the law. And this didn't give them voting rights until the fifteenth Amendment passed in eighteen seventy, where states, you know, it formally, you know, ensure that states would not um would not disenfranchise voters based on, you know, their race or quote, their previous condition of servitude. So States, especially in the especially in the South, they weren't able to, you know, like outcast votes that were made by African Americans. Obviously, no one expected the South to, you know, completely give African Americans the right to vote, treat them equally under the law. So, you know, there were a bunch of acts and bills passed in the Congress to send federal troops down there in the South to made sure that they were not disqualifying African-Americans votes and making sure that they were treated equally under the law. So this all happened during the Reconstruction period after the Civil War. And for about a decade, it went extremely well. African-Americans held, you know, a public office. In some southern states, the registered voters, a large percentage of them were African-Americans. This all changed after the 1876 presidential election which is a whole thing by itself we can spend hours talking about 
this weird, weird election that happened. So it was between the candidates between Rutherford B. Hayes, who was a Republican, and it was against Democrat Samuel J. Tilden. So it was a huge mess, this presidential election, and it was really close, though. So Tilden, um, who was a Democrat, got about 4,200,000 votes. And Hayes got about 4,036,000 votes. So you can you can clearly see that Tilden won the popular vote. And within the Electoral College, Tilden got 204 votes and Hayes got 165 votes. And, you know, based on, you know, the Electoral College and how it's supposed to work, the Tilden should have become president because he got the most electoral votes. Except in the Congress, you know, controlled by the Republicans, they claimed, you know, fraudulent votes. And they, you know, demanded a recount. So, you know, the 20 votes that Hayes needed to beat Tilden, right, those 20 electoral votes in four states, they picked out four states that would, you know, total up to 20 votes that Hayes needed to win were South Carolina, which had seven votes, Louisiana that had eight votes, Florida that had four votes, and Oregon, and you know one of its electors were you know determined to be ineligible to vote, so their state government replaced it with a Republican. So these four states, all their votes would total up to twenty, which Hayes needed to be Tilden, and so this committee or convention that was held right the committee consisted of seven democrats and eight republicans and they needed to check all these four states to make sure you know if there was fraudulent voting if there was you know something suspicious going on right they would correct these votes so the republican controlled congress created this committee and you know to be fair right just to make sure, you know, Democrats were, you know, placated. There were seven Democrats, as I mentioned before, and eight Republicans. And, you know, they carefully looked through the states in dispute. And, you know, after recounting, the committee voted. And the numbers are really interesting. So Louisiana, who had eight votes, you know, they determined, actually, it was for nominee Hayes and this was you know an eight to seven vote so eight Republicans you know voted for Louisiana you know their votes counting for Hayes and seven the Democrats voted against it interesting and then South Carolina those seven votes they determined were actually for Hayes but this was an eight Republican vote against the seven Democrat vote and so you know they the the Democrats, you know, didn't win this one either. Florida's four votes, you know, determined it actually went to Hayes again. So unsurprisingly, there were eight Republicans, you know, voting for Florida, counting towards Hayes, and seven Democrats voting against this. Lastly, Oregon's one vote with a a Republican to a seven Democrat a majority voted for Oregon's one vote to go to Hayes. So, at the end of this weird, weird election, 
Hayes ultimately won the presidency with electoral votes 185 to 184. Now, Democrats, you know, could bring this to the Supreme Court, right? But the Republicans didn't want this to happen. So they made the Compromise of 1877. Democrats in the South hated the federal troops that were placed in there about a decade earlier. And, you know, they hated the fact about Reconstruction and a lot of, a lot of, um, the former confederate leaders right there were a lot of restrictions placed on them so that they wouldn't be able to hold public office it was really hard for them to come back into power again and so they really wanted the federal troops out of there right they wanted you know for them for the congress to you know lay back on them you know to get you know to relieve the pressure and to allow confederate leaders to hold office again and that's what the Compromise of 1877 was, right? The now president, Rutherford Hayes, when he was sworn in, he, you know, he withdrew the federal troops that were in there. And, you know, this allowed the former Confederate leaders to hold office, to regain control. And this is, this was horrible because once the troops were pulled out, right, the South, you know, were, had the confederate leaders had full control and they could you know suppress the african votes and they could you know take away their their rights their freedom and this was obvious right after the reconstruction era after it ended you know hate groups such as the kkk and um lynchings and segregation skyrocketed so even though the Constitution states that, you know, you cannot, you cannot take away someone's vote based on their race. But it didn't account, you know, the states, the southern states, they kind of made a loophole and said, okay, I won't, you know, take away African Americans' vote, but I can do a lot to suppress their vote and make it extremely, extremely hard for them to vote. And this is the era of Jim Crow laws. During this you know, during this era, there was, you know, poll taxes for African Americans. They had to pass, you know, literacy tests that were horrible. They didn't even make any sense. You know, one of the, one of the most mind-boggling questions were how high is up, right? So it was a bunch of these questions, and you can search them up for the literacy tests online, and you can just see how these questions were made to confuse you know, african-americans they were no like measure of how informative of a citizen they were right these tests were just aimed to make sure that they would not pass ever and they would not have their vote counted right to get them you know for voter registration it was extremely hard you know they could just be flat out rejected you know when they try to go register also, the grandfather clause that states passed said that if your you know, grandfather was a slave, you couldn't vote. So the grandfather clause states that if your grandfather was able to vote or voted before 1867, then you can vote. You don't have to pay the vote poll taxes and you don't have to take the literacy test. But, you know, obviously before 1867, most blacks couldn't vote. And this only added on to the voter suppression. 
And it's really important to note that the grandfather clause was in response to a growing, you know, voter suppression for poor whites. Because the literacy tests, you know, were kind of like a requirement, right? So you had to take them when you, if you wanted to vote. But here's the thing, you know, poor Southerns, you know, who are white, they didn't have the education and they weren't able to pass these horrible tests. And but, so, you know, there were less and less white voters, right? In order to combat this and, you know, enfranchise white voters, they passed the grandfather clause so that, you know, they would be able to, because obviously their grandfather were was able to vote before 1867. So they could just, you know, bypass the literacy test and they can bypass the poll taxes. This made sure that, you know, Southerners, white poor Southerners who were illiterate, they could still vote. And, you know, the only reason was just to disenfranchise African-Americans. It's also really important to note that these literacy tests weren't just used in the South. Actually, the North was the one that, you know, started these because of the large growing immigrants population that was coming in in the North. And it was originated in the Northeast, actually, you know, to prevent immigrants from voting. And during this time, after the federal troops were withdrawn, there was a huge increase of um, of laws targeted towards um, black citizens, right? So these laws were were aimed to criminalize them. And so, you know, and around this time, meanwhile, right, there was a huge increase in fel- felony disenfranchisement. So these these targeting laws would put more African Americans in jail disproportionately. And you know, with this, like lifetime, some of them were lifetime felony disenfranchisement, right, for their whole life, right? Even for minor crimes targeted that you know, that targeted them, they wouldn't be able to vote for the rest of their lives. And this was on purpose, right? They wanted to suppress, you know, African Americans vote as much as they could. And the worst thing is that these laws have still carried over until now. Right? Great example is Florida. In 2018, Florida's felony disenfranchisement voter laws restricted the voting rights of about 1.6 million former felons. But um in 2018 there was this petition right for an uh, an amendment that would restore voting rights to those former felons after this amendment was passed amendment 4 and added to the state constitution right the republican controlled state government in florida passed a law so that they could you know loophole around this amendment 4 so they said if you want to vote, that's fine, but we have to pay all your fines, all your taxes, everything before you're allowed to vote. To not to mention the huge amount of money they would have to pay. And it, it might take years for them to get all that money saved up and be able to, you know, you know, pay all those fines so that they could be able to vote. Right? So obviously this was an attempt to 
restrict their vote and to suppress voters. And according to ABC News, even if you did have the money and were able to pay off all your taxes and fines, you would go to the state government and ask, you know, for them to restore your voting rights. But then there was there's this whole mess, right? You go to pay off your fines and taxes and you ask them, you know, how much is, you know, how much I owe? And they would say, oh, it's so complicated. You know, we have so many different counties. I I don't really know. And so they haven't paid off their fines even if they wanted to. And they still wouldn't even be able to vote. So even in 2020 today, a lot of people weren't able to vote in the 2020 presidential election because of their fines. And according to a report, there's still about 700,000 former felons in Florida who can't vote and who are restricted and suppressed from voting because they still have huge, huge amounts and piles of fines that they need to pay first, which is just a clear, obvious way to suppress former felons' votes. And so while I was researching about voter suppression, especially now, which is even crazy to think about, how people are still being suppressed, how people are still, you know, people still don't have the right to vote even though they're citizens. And while I was researching, I found an organization called Free Our Vote. It's a free resource for former felons and you can, they collect information And they created this whole database. So you can check if you have your fines. If you check, you know, how much you owe. And they just want to restore voting rights to former felons. Who don't have enough to pay off these huge taxes and fines. Right, just so that they could vote. And during this 2020 presidential election, right, I'm sure during the 2016 presidential election that there were a huge um, difference in voting lines. According to a study by Brennan Center, it concluded that black voters had to wait 45 minutes longer and Latino voters had to wait 46 minutes longer than the average white person. So you can clearly see how, like, whether it's like the state government um, trying to suppress people, um, people of color votes by, you know, changing up, um, the ballot box by, you know, just the way that it's set up, the way that these voter centers are set up, you know, by the state government, who want to, basically, clearly to suppress the votes of people of color. To summarize today, and this podcast. Basically, you know, throughout the whole history of the United States, there has been clear, clear examples of voter suppression and how states have managed to get away with it. And even worse, it's carried over to the 21st century, which is crazy to think about why votes are still being suppressed and restricted. And the best thing that, you know, citizens can do victims of voter suppression and also bystanders that are watching voter suppression happening is to fight it to protest it to you know sign petitions and to support organizations that help victims of voter suppression you know get their voice back you know get their vote back and their power to you know decide their own future
As always, the sources will be linked in the description. And thank you so much for listening.